So you've probably heard of the stories Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, and Sleeping Beauty. They're all written by the 17th century author and poet Charles Perrault. And as popular as these stories are and have been throughout the world, you probably haven't heard as much about the one story that he wrote titled Bluebeard. It wouldn't exactly make the list of Disney's animated or live action remakes, but maybe a story about a prince kissing an unconscious woman shouldn't either. The tale of Bluebeard's originally a folk tale about marriage and a pretty gruesome one at that. But according to legal scholar, professor, and activist Derek Bell, this story is a parallel to the experience of black people in America. for our young people. But it's, it's like racism is permanent, you know, which moment. I think that, that, that telling the truth as you see it is never discouraging. It, it can be enlightening. Things have changed, but you're saying at, at its root, it hasn't, That's and right. it can't. And if the things have taken, taken different forms, uh, the subordination takes different forms okay. than it did. Okay. But, so but this is a, it's not because all white people are equal. It's because the system requires that there be this outcome. And, and in America, that's black women. I think I see a great deal of satisfaction and some degree of happiness in people who have determined to spend as much as they can on recognizing bad stuff and making it better. Bluebeard is a wealthy man who lives in a castle on a large estate, whose beard is actually blue, which is a pretty unattractive feature. He wants to get married. Again, he's been married before, but it's just never worked out. And so Bluebeard one day approaches his neighbor, a widowed woman who has two beautiful daughters, neither of whom is interested in marrying this man with the blue beard. And so Bluebeard invites them to his castle for dinner one evening. The youngest daughter becomes seduced by Bluebeard's wealth and decides to marry him. She leaves her family and goes to live with him in his castle in the countryside. Shortly after, Bluebeard tells her that he has to make a business trip and that he'll be away for some time, but he leaves her the keys to his castle and he leaves her in charge. He tells her that she has access to whatever she wants, his riches, jewels, chests of luxurious things, she can open any door to any room in the house with these keys, but there's only one room he doesn't want her to enter, a room in the basement of the house or at the end of a hall in some variations of the story. If she opens that door, Bluebeard tells her that she'll experience his wrath. Bluebeard leaves and his new wife immediately wrestles with curiosity at what's behind the door at the end of the hall. She rushes to open it and when she does, she finds the room covered in blood with the murdered corpses of Bluebeard's former wives lying around the room. In fear, she drops the key on the floor in a pool of blood. Then she scrambles to pick up the key. She rushes out of the room, locks it, and runs back to her room in another part of the house. There she tries washing and scrubbing the key for hours, but the blood just won't come off. And when things couldn't get any more alarming, Bluebeard returns. His business has been concluded and he's back home. When he arrives, he asks for the keys back from his wife, 
and then he starts examining them one by one. When he notices the blood stain on the smallest key, he asks her about it, but she pleads ignorance. So Bluebeard, unsatisfied with her response, tells her that he knows exactly where she's been, and now, as punishment, she'll join his other wives in the locked room at the end of the hall. Frightened, Bluebeard's wife attempts to delay her punishment by asking if she can pray before meeting her fate. But in the back of her mind, she remembers that her brothers were supposed to visit her at Bluebeard's castle that day. She goes back to her room, calls out to her sister, and asks if she sees anyone coming. But after doing this for three times with no response, Bluebeard comes with his sword, prepared to behead her. And as he raises his sword, her brothers arrive. Bluebeard is defeated and his wealth is dispersed amongst his wife's family. Bluebeard's now former wife marries again, this time to a man who'd make her forget the terrible experience with her former husband. So again, this story isn't Disney popular, but it is popular. In 1911, a Hungarian composer named Bella Bartok turned a variation of the story into an opera, where Bluebeard's wife, a woman named Judith, lives in Bluebeard's dark and wet castle with no windows. One day, Judith comes across this hall of locked doors in Bluebeard's castle, and she asks him to unlock them all. Bluebeard refuses, which introduces this pervasive secrecy in their marriage, secrecy that Judith will push past by getting Bluebeard to give her all of the keys to these locked rooms. Eventually, she persuades him to give her all the keys one by one, and she starts unlocking the doors, finding out that each room is terrifying and every new door open reveals a more terrifying scene. And so the first door, she opens it up, and inside she finds a torture chamber covered in blood. The second door, weapons covered in blood as well. The third door, riches and wealth covered in blood. The fourth door, a secret garden that is stained in blood. The fifth door, a blood-stained window that looks out onto Bluebeard's entire kingdom. And finally, as a shadow begins to pass over the entire castle, she unlocks the sixth door. Judith opens it up to find not blood, but a small lake inside of the room. She asks Bluebeard about his former wives, accusing him of murdering them and their blood being in each of the other rooms. But then, just behind the door, Bluebeard's three wives come forth alive and covered in jewelry and wearing crowns. Bluebeard bows down before each of them, before slowly turning to Judith and starting to praise her. She begs him to stop, but before she can escape, he dresses her in heavy jewelry like the others, and she falls in line with the other wives who then proceed to follow a beam of moonlight in the direction of a seventh door. The door opens and closes behind the wives, leaving Bluebeard alone in his castle. Both stories are pretty disturbing, and you can decide which one is worse. 
But Derek Bell believes that this story, particularly Bartok's variation, is a parallel to the experience of black people in America. In a chapter titled Bluebeard's Castle, an American fairy tale from his book titled Afrolantica Legacies, Bell believes that black people are a lot like Bluebeard's wife Judith in this story, who, although she's allured by Bluebeard's wealth, she's only a figure to cover up his past corruption, corruption that she's eventually swept up in. Although she wants to see Bluebeard embrace liberation and light inside of this dark castle, Bluebeard will continue to desire dominance. So when it comes to American society, Bell sees the same transaction taking place. In a way that protects its own self-interest, the country will, according to Bell, periodically produce a symbol of redemption in the wake of unspeakable cruelty or crippling racial discrimination. And in these symbols, which are usually policies addressing racial inequality, black people have sought the light of racial equality that would undo our country's destructive past, a motivation that's been shared by many black and non-black people. But at the same time, there are also many in our country's history who've promoted and pursued these symbolic policies from a place of selfish self-interest, which will end up making these policies more symbol than substance. And Bell believes that this continues to be the struggle in our nation, an unending struggle that will persist with black people continuing in a second class and subordinated status. One of the issues that he often points out is the initial satisfaction and relief experienced by blacks on the receiving end of these policies, while the self-serving motives for white dominance beneath these policies are never really examined. Civil rights advocates, white politicians, and even many black people have typically either promoted or accepted the fact that in these symbolic policies, they're getting a good deal. The struggle has been long and hard, and what sounds and looks like equality is finally broken through. And so referring back to the story, a figurative door is opened in this dark castle. But after walking through it, Bell says that blacks again find themselves trapped in the darkness of a new and more subtle set of subordinating social shadows. Despair sets in again and hope is lost. doors or policies that Bell refers to being more symbolic than substantive. He lists six that have taken place at the national level that have promoted racial equality and have provided some level of relief to blacks, but have, on the other side, ended up entrenching blacks in a similarly subordinated status as before. This is what makes each door the same, but what makes them different is the setting and context in which the policies were made settings where the factors surrounding white self-interest were different, and although progress might have taken place for some blacks, it is yet to manifest for several others. So let's enter through these doors. Door number one, the Emancipation Proclamation. In this major executive decision in 1863 by President Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, enslaved blacks were set free, escaping from the South, enlisting in the Union Army, and upending the Southern economy. The North won as a consequence, 
but the proclamation, which symbolically held out freedom to enslaved and oppressed black people, didn't actually free any slaves at all as it was only applied to areas under the Confederacy, which had split from the Union. But this didn't matter to black people as the news of freedom, especially within the sight of incoming Union troops, was enough to pursue it. On the other hand, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't secure any rights for newly freed slaves. The South would ultimately recover and reform its practices of black subjugation, discrimination, and oppression, leaving black people essentially defenseless and economically bereft. Reparations were paid to Southern slave owners for freeing their slaves, but nothing was given to black people for their survival and flourishing in a nation that still hated them. Freedom was largely symbolic. Door number two, the post-Civil War amendments. President Lincoln's Republicans had passed the Emancipation Proclamation, winning the war and preserving the Union. But if they didn't act quickly, their Democratic opponents, if they won the presidential election, would undo everything they had worked to secure, including violently returning blacks into slavery. So they implemented the 14th and 15th Amendments, which gave citizenship to freed blacks along with voting rights to black men. For many Republicans, the motivation behind this was to maintain control of Congress by securing the black vote for years to come, and this action also provided blacks with civil rights and the ability to participate in the government. Upon closer examination, although the 14th Amendment guaranteed life, liberty, equal protection, and due process to persons, this language was generalized because the amendment wouldn't have been passed if it specifically applied to blacks. Corporations were eventually included in the definition of persons in the amendment, and ultimately, corporations would be given more protection than black citizens in the enforcement of this amendment. In the 15th Amendment, black voters were guaranteed protection against white supremacy, but due to Jim Crow laws like poll taxes, literacy tests, and grandfather clauses, blacks continued to experience discrimination at the polls, rendering the 15th Amendment to a meaningless symbol. Door number three, desegregation. Brown versus the Board of Education is hailed among many black people as the greatest Supreme Court decision of all time due to its ending segregation. It didn't just hold national, but international significance. Although its greatest impact would be in schools, black people believe that the precedent destroying separate but equal would have an impact throughout American society, accelerating blacks to full equality. While many, both blacks and whites, sought to end segregation, Bell often highlights what Time Magazine and W.E.B. Du Bois pointed out about the pressure on America, pressure largely coming from communist countries to end segregation if America were to remain at the forefront of the world's nations. Nevertheless, once Brown was passed, the question became about the immediacy of its enforcement. The opposition that quickly came against the Brown decision caused the court to back away from immediate enforcement, which resulted in the language of all deliberate speed in Brown too. Following this, the equality that blacks hoped for through Brown became an elusive dream. Many middle-class blacks benefited from desegregation, but others still faced the realities of their schools and neighborhoods being even more separate and segregated and unequal than before Brown. Door number four, the Civil Rights Acts of 1964. Behind this door, 
Bell points out that in spite of all the action and activism taken during the civil rights movements in the 50s and the 60s, including protests, sit-ins, boycotts, and marches, the movement became symbolic in that it appealed to the moral conscience of the nation because more was needed in the area of legislation in order for segregation to end. Southern states were still largely segregated and Jim Crow laws were still in place. And so, still facing the pressure from the Cold War and a desire to maintain a superior international image, the nation moved to enact the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1968 that made racial discrimination illegal when it came to voting, housing, and employment. But once again, racism transformed into more subtle and complex forms, this time giving those charged with committing racial discrimination the ability to deny racism while also removing racism as a reason for the persisting disparities between blacks and whites in the country. Door number five, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Along with the Civil Rights Acts, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 came about due to the South's continued resistance to the new federal laws enacted in the Civil Rights Acts. President Lyndon Johnson's administration still faced the pressure from Martin Luther King and civil rights activists who were protesting in Alabama on national television and facing the violent reaction from Alabama police and their white citizens which caused Congress to respond immediately with the Voting Rights Act. As America's white majority disapprovingly watched the violence and civil unrest of Bloody Sunday, their interests would converge with black interests for equality at the ballot box. The Democratic administration also faced pressure as more Southern white voters were moving to the Republican Party and Democrats needed more votes, particularly black votes, to remain in power in the region. Even Martin Luther King brought up this fact to the newly elected President Johnson after he won in 1964. And so although the Voting Rights Act made a way for increased numbers of black elected officials in the coming years, Southern resistance still continued, even to this day. In 2013, the Supreme Court struck down part of the Voting Rights Act that kept the federal government from interfering in states' voting restrictions. And as a result, several states began enacting things like voter ID laws. And even this year, in 2021, 17 states passed restrictive voting laws, including Georgia, which introduced the Georgia Senate Bill 202, which civil rights groups argued violates the Voting Rights Act by racially discriminating against voters. Although the Voting Rights Act was a door that initially held out hope for black Americans, it's yet another room of unrealized expectations. Door number six, affirmative action. In the years following the civil rights movement and the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there were several urban rebellions and black-led movements in response to segregation's unyielding grip on American society in spite of the federal laws that were passed. Bell says that these years serve as scary reminders that more than a dozen years after Brown and a half dozen years after enactment of federal civil rights laws, most corporations, government agencies, and institutions of higher learning remain virtually all white and mostly male. He goes on to say that the response to this was, instead of overhauling the policies and structures that caused discriminatory hiring practices, creating all white male cultures, Corporations simply chose to establish racial and gender preferences in their hiring practices in what's known as affirmative action. For many corporations, 
Affirmative action worked and the goals of establishing a more diverse culture were met. But when the job market tightened, whites began feeling threatened and started opposing affirmative action programs, even though white women were the major beneficiaries of the programs. And so, in the supposedly colorblind context of the early 90s, a program like affirmative action, which took race and sex into consideration, was frowned on by the courts, although they had previously stated that some consideration of race was necessary to further diversity. As opposition grew against affirmative action programs, both in the courts and in society, black hopes for equality in admissions and in the labor market were sacrificed again. A similar pattern as to what previously took place in these many other doorways that promised equality yet failed to deliver. Although the racial circumstances and historical context surrounding these events differs, and although progress continues to be made amongst blacks in the country, the barriers to racial equality still remain and continue to keep many blacks in a subordinated position in society. While Bell acknowledges the progress made by many blacks, he still sees the gaps between whites and blacks, both working class and poor, in areas like wealth, income, housing, and employment as being just as significant as they were during the time of segregation. This kind of slow progress wasn't the vision of the civil rights movement. And so responding to Martin Luther King's reassurance to black people about progress being stalled in the years after the civil rights movement, Bell says this. He says, the goal of equal opportunity that once loomed on the horizon like a heavenly city is now seldom visible. So unlike Perot's story of Bluebeard, where Judith's family saves the day just before Bluebeard beheads her, Bell doesn't see any cavalry coming for black people in America. And much like Bluebeard, America won't be reasoned with to change its course in maintaining white dominance. Instead, Bell believes, black people will continue to find themselves subject to this nation's desire to reassert its power in order to maintain the interests of the majority, even through policies and laws that promote black liberation. This has always been the pattern. It began, as we saw in the previous episode, during the colonial era and at the Constitutional Convention of 1787. But Bell summarizes it well in this chapter on Bluebeard's Castle when he says this, that history indicates that from the very beginning, the subordination of blacks has been tied at least as closely to economic factors as it has been to the deeply held belief in white superiority. Much like the end of Bartok's version of Bluebeard where Judith follows Bluebeard's wives through the seventh door, Bell sees blacks facing a seventh door that doesn't have a happy ending either. In the story, Bluebeard praises his wives before returning them and Judith to their bondage. His adoration is an empty gesture that's really a maintaining of his dominance over them. In the same way, Bell sees the nation's policies and documents involving black freedom as merely symbols for blacks that, while at times might be fortuitously beneficial for black people, are really just ways to maintain white dominance. Bell lists six doors, and he believes that there's a seventh as well. It's the door of racial revelation. Behind this door, the hope is that when the light of self-revelation breaks in, both black and white people can see something about themselves and our nation. 
white people can finally see the destructiveness of white supremacy, something that black people have known and experienced for centuries. And both black and white people can be set free from its destructive effects. Blacks, on the other hand, can see the light of racial realism. What Bell says is the gateway to attaining a more meaningful status, making life bearable where blacks are a permanent subordinate class. This is a perspective that, as Bell says, acknowledges that our actions are not likely to lead to transcendent change and despite our best efforts, may be of more help to the system we despise than to the victims of that system that we're trying to help. Nevertheless, our realization and the dedication based on that realization can lead to policy positions and campaigns that are less likely to worsen conditions for those we are trying to help and will be more likely to remind those in power that there are imaginative, unabashed risk takers who refuse to be trampled upon. So what will happen when blacks and whites walk through this seventh door and encounter this light? Well, Bell expects that there may be hesitancy in both blacks and whites to accept the truth about the destructive power of white supremacy and the bleak reality of racial realism. He also says that there may be hesitancy to accept the country's racial history of symbols over substance in its policies and laws. And following this hesitancy, he says, will come disappointment. And in his own words, a betrayal of our dreams for an end to this racial bondage. Disappointed, he says, resigned to our fate, we will watch as it too, like Bluebeard's Judith, is retired to some somber chamber while the stage grows dark and the curtain falls. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Space Traders Podcast. Subscribe, follow us, leave a rating or a review. Follow us on Twitter at Space Traders Pod and check out the spacetraderspod.com for more information. Uh, again, leave a rating or review. We'd love to hear from you. We'll have one more episode and we'll see you next time.